This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So if you have debt in this segment, we're going to talk about four resources that you should know about. And Blair, of course, is a licensed insolvency trustee, um, so he's got really, really good information. But these are things that I could do without your help. Yeah, three of the four things we're going to talk about just consist of arming consumers with the right knowledge, the right insights, the right information. Um, Some of these are loyal listeners will know because we allude to them over time. But if I were to say, you know, what are the four things people really need to know if they're facing debt and they're just not sure where to turn? Here's a couple really good or here's four really good, good places to start. Okay, if nothing else, to get more information about and see if your situation fits this. Mm -hmm. So the first one is called Seize or Sue. Yeah, so this is a provision that, to my knowledge, it's unique to BC and Alberta. It doesn't exist in many other provinces in Canada. And what it really relates to is vehicle financing for the most part. So it means if you've financed a vehicle, and I've seen this with my clients, sometimes they consolidate a bunch of debt when they're financing a vehicle. So literally they might have a $20,000 car when they drive it off the lot, but when they took the loan out, uh, the dealership said, okay, you know, we can consolidate your credit card debt and other things, or maybe you had some negative equity from another vehicle, so on and so forth. Oh, fair enough. So sometimes you can end up as soon as you drive off the lot, owing a ton more than what that car was ever worth. Um, and if you find yourself over time thinking, you know what, this car isn't performing or it isn't working, or, you know, I don't like paying fifty or $60,000 for sometimes a Kia Rio or, you know, similar compact type of car, you might feel like you have no other options that if you don't make payments on the loan, well, you're going to have to pay this debt somehow. Or if they come and take the car back because it's repossessed, they're going to hold you accountable for every dollar that you owe on the debt. And that's just not true. So that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the consolidation part where you're Mm -hmm. putting other things onto that, not just the car loan. Yeah. Okay, so how does it work then? Yeah, so the way that it works in the province of BC, if you financed a consumer good, so not, you know, a business vehicle, not an asset that you use in business, and not real estate. So, you know, if you have a mortgage on your house and you stop paying the mortgage, they will sell the house. And if the house doesn't sell for enough, they'll hold you accountable for that shortfall. Those are very clear. With a vehicle, it doesn't work the same way. If you stop making payments on a vehicle, the the lender has to decide. They're either going to seize the vehicle back from you, literally come and take the car or the truck, or they're going to say, keep the vehicle, we're going to sue you for the full payment on our loan, but they're not allowed to do both. Okay. Okay. If we're in any other province, and let's say we've got a $10,000 car that we owe $30,000 on, if they come and seize that car from us and sell it for 10 at auction, they give us a bill for $20,000. In the province of BC, if they come and seize that $10,000 car, sell it at auction for $10,000, the $20,000 loss cannot be passed along to the consumer. It has to be absorbed by the financer. Now, is that the case even if it was a consolidated uh, loan? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So the onus is on them to figure out whether or not you're a good enough risk. Yeah, whether the person's actually able to afford these payments. Now, the person that might get sued is the person that legitimately can afford to pay for all these debts. So if someone is sitting there, you know, a house with oodles of equity in it, and they financed a car and they stopped making the payments, 
it's quite possible the car dealership is going to say, you know what, we think if we sued you, we'd be able to get this money. Um, you know, basically we'd register a title on your house. That person might get sued. Right. But if you're listening out here and you got very few assets, you know, you're working, but you know, you're not pulling in $10,000 a month, for example, odds are that the dealership is going to take, you know, the first loss is the best loss type of thing, meaning that they're just going to take the asset, the sure thing, rather than take the risk of trying to sue you and making you pay, um, you know, the full amount of the loan if they're successful in suing you. Yeah, because it all depends on how good you look in the court, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of not your, your situation, not how you actually look. Oh, yeah, your situation. Yeah, if it's clear you're making $2,000 a month, a bunch of that has to go for rent and food and so on and so forth, what are they reasonably going to be able to convince a judge to make you pay back? Right. $100 a month on fifty grand. well, that's going to take forever. I don't think so. Yeah, right? and you've got children and all all those kinds of things. Okay, so that's interesting, and that's and that's really interesting knowing that British Columbia is the only one, mm-hmm. the only province that operates that way. Yeah, BC and Alberta, so kind of Western oh, Canada, as but, well? okay. but yeah, definitely Ontario, where I'm originally from. No, you'd be on the hook. You'd, you'd be held accountable for all the shortfalls. Okay, mm-hmm. statute of limitations on debt. See, yeah, this is where it doesn't, it's not that it's confusing, but mm-hmm. is there a statute of limitations on debt? Because sometimes it feels like there isn't. Yeah, most people think that there's not, and collection agencies are never going to tell you that the debt is beyond the statute of limitations, but there absolutely is a legal framework that sets out that if you owe somebody money and you don't pay them, they can't hold the you know sword of Damocles over your head for the rest of your life and saying, I'm going to sue you someday. I'm going to sue you. You know that? Okay. They've got to take action within a short period of time. And the law changed a number of years ago. It used to be six years. Someone could threaten to sue you for six years from when you owed a debt and stopped paying oh. it, which is a long time. It's now two years. Okay. But nobody knows about that. And it's two years from the last time you made a payment or the last time you signed a written acknowledgement saying that you owe this money. So if you stop paying on your debts and two years goes by, you can never be forced to pay those debts in a court of law. If a legal action was ever brought against you, you would show up in court, you'd have a three-word defense, statute of limitations, and that would be about the end of it. Okay. So sometimes the worst thing people can do is, you know, sometimes it's good cop, bad cop with collectors. They'll say, you know what, just pay me $5 this month, pay me $10 this month, just, you know, some good faith effort to show that you're serious. And if you're 19 months in of no payments and you make a $5 payment, guess what? You're back to zero and that two-year clock starts again. And and it doesn't matter what the th- the, the debt is, the, the kind of debt is, or are there some sort of... Um, uh, you know, specifics around that. There's very few um, exceptions to the type of debt that's not subject to a statute of limitations. Um, You know, one is if there's already been a civil claim against you, if you've already been taken to court and there's a civil judgment, um, you know, that can typically last for about 14 years. That's a very rare situation, but, you know, that's one where the the statute of limitations wouldn't apply. And that the average person wouldn't find themselves in that situation. Typically not. Most people aren't sued and have civil awards against them, most people. Right. Um, Canada Revenue Agency and student loans, again, you can't wait out the government, so there is no... no statute of limitations on government debt. In one way or another, it's got to be dealt with. Um, arrears of child support or spousal support, this just makes sense, right? If you've got obligations, you can't stop paying. And then a couple of years later, say, hey, gee, I've got no, no spousal support or child support obligations. Those would always follow you. Um, but, you know, that's essentially it for the vast majority of cases, credit cards, um, you know, lines of credit, loans, payday loans, different things like that. Most, if not all, consumer debts are subject to the two-year statute of limitations. Okay. And one of them that you talked about in your list, of course, can be dealt with with a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, mm-hmm. like when you talk about the government stuff. 
off, yeah. uh, that falls into that category, which, of course, um, can be dealt with. Yeah, absolutely. All of the debts can be dealt with under either a bankruptcy or a proposal. But in some cases, if I've got somebody in my office that's 75 or 80 years old and owes a few thousands of dollars and haven't paid it for two years, I'm educating them on the statute of limitations, counseling them. Maybe you don't need to take any action here. And the next time someone calls, you just basically do what I'm going to tell you next, which is to get your communications in writing only. Great. And that's a, and that's a significant piece. Again, mm-hmm. something that you can do uh, that you don't need someone's help that's or right. a lawyer's help to do, uh, but getting that uh, communication in writing only. Yeah. So if you... If when I tell people, you know, these collection calls that are really bothering you, you know what, you have the option to just not consent to those calls. I, I get, you know, the, the blank, look, really? I've got the option? Yeah. Because no one will ever tell you you've got the option. I've heard these voicemails and they say, this is a serious legal matter. You must phone us back today. You and know, it's Action will be taken against you. Immediately. <laughs> yes. the, yeah. the action will be immediately. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and it won't. There's no immediate action. The action they could potentially take is to hire a lawyer that, hey, in a month you'll get a statement of claim, if ever. Like it, It's usually not going to happen that yeah. way. But what I encourage people to do is just don't play the game. Just don't accept collection calls. And the province of BC has provision in the law, a request for communication in writing only. So this means that if someone's calling you to collect a debt, you can send them a letter in a prescribed format, and the letter's available on our website, Sands which, Trustee. Which I think is great yeah, that we, you guys do. That. Oh, we want to give all, all the information, right? Uh, you send them a letter in the prescribed format, and then they're not allowed to call you anymore. All they can do is send you a letter rather than come over the phone to, you know, towards you. And you can bet what they would write down on a sheet of paper is a whole lot more innocuous, a whole lot real, you know, more valid than what they might say, you know, in a, in a fit of anger or intimidation or something, just trying to get you to pay the debt no matter what. And there's repercussions for those people as well if they don't follow that mm-hmm. letter. Yeah, consumer protection BC, they will fine, they will suspend certain debt collectors if they're seen to be flouting the rules. These are legislated requirements. And again, it's just the fact that people don't know about them. I wish the government did a better job to actually explain to consumers, you have more rights than you think when you owe people money. Right. Very cool. Um, government debt forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of the one that, well, it's pretty serious. You yeah. can't fool around with that. Yeah, so the things that I've spoken or we've spoken about in the segment so far, you can typically do on your own. Uh, They don't require any professional to help you. But if you owe the government money, typically you do want to get a professional working on your behalf, like a licensed insolvency trustee. So if it's a situation where, you know, whether it's GST, income tax debt, student loans, um, you know, whatever it might be, um, you can file a consumer proposal or you can file a personal bankruptcy and those debts can get dealt with the same as every other debt. And that's really important to note. Um, and I can, I can, uh, from personal experience, you have to deal with them. You mm-hmm. have to deal with Canada Revenue Agency. You yep. cannot ignore them. You can't. And they, and you have to, Yeah. I, I thought I had a good enough reason why I wasn't dealing with it. With death of a parent, right? Are you right. kidding? And there, they, there's no provision for that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty sad, right? Right. And money has to be paid regardless. And interest is charged and all that kind of stuff. But if I couldn't have paid that, that's when I would come and seek you out. Absolutely. If it's a situation where the government debt is beyond what you can afford, you don't have assets you know, that could reasonably pay off the debt, that's when you would need the help of a licensed insolvency trustee because only a licensed insolvency trustee can actually force the government to back off 
We can force the government to accept a reasonable settlement under a consumer proposal, which that's the only way you can make a deal with Sierra. If you're trying to negotiate with the collector over the phone and saying, you know what, how about 30% on this or how about 50% with no interest? Uh, They might not laugh, but you're definitely not going to get anywhere with it. They're just not empowered to make any deals with you. The only way to make a deal on government debt is to file a consumer proposal through a licensed insolvency trustee. And you get full protection the whole way. You get some financial counseling sessions. You get everything turned around so you can move on and you know deal positively with the government instead of being in fear of them. Yeah, and it won't be for that for that big huge amount that you owe either, right? They'll fall in line with everyone else. Yeah. In terms of of being reasonable about it. It'll be for what you can afford. So, yeah. you know, if you can afford to pay back the debt of $5,000, but you need a little bit of time, well then, okay, the proposal might give you payments over a longer period of time to pay it back in full. If it's 50000 they want, and we look at your budget, you can afford a couple hundred bucks a month and that's it. Well, we're not going to have you paying for 20 years. You're going to pay a maximum of five years and it's going to be a reasonable deal. If you want that form that we were talking about for the uh, statute of limit or for the request in communication and writing only, uh, that's on the website sands-trustee.com. If you want more information, go to the website. It's terrific. It's got tons of questions and answers. Uh, if you want to give them a call, the one eight hundred number is six six one. 3030. Get that first free consultation as well as find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. It's always so great to have someone on the show, a real person who's gone through something and not only survived, but benefited from all the, from the hard experience and all the hard work, whether it be through a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Sometimes, you know, their situation can resonate with you and you get an idea or it feels familiar. Uh, we're, we feel so fortunate to have Tom on the show with us. He's, uh, Tom is a client of Sands & Associates, uh, wanted to come forward and tell his story in the hopes of helping others as well. Uh, so thank you, Tom, so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Great. Tom, I wonder, can you tell me a little bit about the situation that brought you to Sands & Associates? What was going on in, in your life? You know, what were you experiencing? And, and then what was it like to reach out for help? Oh, well, it started with um, being uh, unexpectedly taken out of work due to a medical situation, okay. which then dragged on for long enough to cause financial stress. Hmm. Yeah, and was this a workplace in- injury, something where, you know, you're getting your income replaced, or is there, there was a big income interruption there? Uh, it was in- uh, income interrupted. Um, it wasn't proven to be a work-related injury. What it was mm. was I had a severe shoulder problem and needed surgery for correction. Uh, it was not covered by WorkSafe BC. It was not covered by any work insurance. I was on EI for a couple of months on what they call medical EI, but it's a very short period EI. And when I was cut off of that, I was basically left on my own to um, work out my finances while waiting ever so patiently for our BC medical system to um, to take note of me. Hmm. And it doesn't. And while it's an awful situation for you, Tom, I bet it's not a super unusual situation for folks to find themselves in. No, it's not. And we're all kind of at risk of something like this if you don't plan ahead, which I had not. 
So when this came about, I did not have much savings in my account. Um, it's something that, you know, it was a hard lesson to learn, to plan for the unexpected. It's a good idea to just salt away a small percentage of your paycheck every year, every, every paycheck for that matter, mm-hmm. into a separate account that you might call your emergency account. And it might grow for 20 years without ever being touched, or it might be two years in and all of a sudden something happens that you need that money that you put aside. So that's really the lesson learned about that. You know, and and while I appreciate the fact that, y- that you were able to learn that lesson, um, I doubt that very many folks, even one, think about it, or if they've thought about it, are even able to do that. So it's... Uh, well, you- you know, it's pretty special You're, you're situation. onto something right there, um, and it depends on your geographics. Like, I live in the Lower Mainland, and as we know, the Lower Mainland is one of the most expensive places to live. The yeah. cost of living compared to income is quite extreme. The cost of housing, whether you're renting or paying a mortgage, is a higher percentage of your income than most anywhere else in the country. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. It's really, really hard to budget in such a way that you have any money left over at the end of the month to, to just put aside and forget about. So, yeah, it can be, you know, living from paycheck to paycheck is not uncommon for a lot of the workforce. And, and Tom, I wonder if you're comfortable sharing numbers or even just percentages. You know, what was the, the magnitude of the shock to your income? You know, I assume you're earning, you know, pretty decent money to start. And then suddenly, um, you know, medical EI is, is not great. And then after that, you know, even lower income. So what what was that like in terms of, you know, either amounts or percentages? Okay. I can give a quick rundown of my story. What it is, is I actually am I'm married without children. Um, there's a bit of an extra financial strain to, to my situation. My wife is on long-term disability. She has MS, and she cannot work. So she has a very, very low income through an insurance company. It barely covers a couple of bills. Uh, so basically, I'm supporting both of us. My income is fairly decent in a normal two-income family, but unfortunately, we're more of a one-and-a-half-income family. I'm around, I'll just give you the numbers, actually, I'm around seventy to 75000 a year mm-hmm. uh, before taxes. That's my gross income. Right. Uh, I'm in the construction business and have to follow that market, so it can fluctuate from year to year. Mm-hmm. And due to the, the cost of income, yeah, it was very difficult to to live within our means of the income that we had and combined income. So yeah, we get it. When the medical situation arose, I was not prepared in the sense that uh, I did not even go into debt until after three months of not being in work. Mm -hmm. Now, when the EI ran out, this is the part a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their, their mind around. I went from a small income, the EI covered less than half of my normal wage to zero income. And when I say zero income, I mean literally zero income. There was no insurance coverage. There was no uh, WCB coverage. There was no, I mean, I even went to the welfare office and applied to welfare to see if I could get any help there because I literally had 0.00 coming in every month for six months. And yet I had to cover rent, food, bills, gas, um, you know, to typical expenses that everybody has. And Tom, I, I want to make sure, um, you know, the listeners can really understand where you're at now, because that sounds like, you know, a pretty tough situation. Can you take me through, you know, the, the steps uh, where you reached out for help and, you know, where you are today? Because I know you're in a much better spot now. Okay. Well, I didn't reach out for help right away. I went down that rabbit hole of borrowing more and more money until there was 
no more money to borrow and no way of paying it back. Uh, I then, and all this time, I'm on this waiting list hoping that the surgery is going to show up and save my wallet, uh, which didn't happen. Uh, then when I realized that I was in real financial trouble, I phoned my creditors and let them know that I'm sorry, but until I go back to work, I simply cannot pay you back or even make a payment. Uh, it took a bit for them to wrap that around their head because they said, you know, even a small payment would make a difference. And I said, no, it's a, it's a zero income. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I started looking at my options. Um, I'd had heard of personal bankruptcy, so I explored that. I talked with a friend who had gone through a trustee and had his experience with that uh, a number of years ago. So I approached a trustee at that time. This is probably about two months before my surgery. Uh, And the one hitch to dealing with whether you declare bankruptcy or you do a consumer proposal, you do have to have some sort of income because you need to make a monthly payment towards your bankruptcy or towards your consumer proposal, no matter how small that is. It's going to be a percentage of of your income. So when you start at zero, there's there's nothing you can do until you until you can acquire some sort of income. So I had to wait until I went back to work before I reapproached Sands and Associates and said, "Okay, I'm back to work part time. There's my situation," and everything went uphill from there quite nice. quickly. Yeah, and Tom, do you mind sharing what we were able to help you with? Obviously, respecting your confidentiality, I haven't you know given any background here. Uh, but- the experience actually was quite amazing. I don't mean to sound like a, a sponsor promoting your company, but I got to tell you, the being set at ease and the the non judgmental uh, atmosphere and approach yes. that uh, your staff has is absolutely amazing. Um, after my first meeting, I mean, uh, I walked out of there feeling a hundred times better. At that point, I was very stressed. I was very depressed. Uh, you know, really feeling like I, I was trapped with no way out. And within the first meeting, I didn't feel that way anymore. Once I got everything established and chose a consumer proposal over a bankruptcy because I could, and I would recommend to people that if you can do that option, uh, use bankruptcy as your last option, not your first one. If you can do a consumer proposal, it's it's a it's a better way to go. You might end up paying a bit more back, but you'll also not be as financially hooped and shall we say credit hooped like your your credit rating takes a much bigger hit with a bankruptcy than it does with a consumer proposal i just want to jump in at this point tom because we were just running out of time um yeah no worries the consumer proposal you went and saw sands and associates and and that's what they were able to work out with you was doing the consumer proposal and i just want to remind the listener if there's anything in Tom's story that resonates with you and uh, you're thinking that this may be uh, the path that you want to take, uh, first go to their website at sands-trustee.com. There's just loads of good information there that, that'll give you even more information to take that next step. The 1-800 number to get a free consultation, that's your first consultation, and to find an office, 1-800-661-3030. And like I say, to find that Sands & Associates office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. 
It's so great. We've got a guest in the studio. Doesn't happen very often, does it, Blair? <laughs> Usually on the phone, but in person's better. <laughs> it's totally great. Yeah. Taylor Mark is our guest. She's a certified financial planner, chartered life underwriter, certified health insurance specialist, over 15 years of experience in the financial industry, um, specializes in estate planning, uh, which really comes down to income protection, wealth accumulation, tax. She's just got a ton of background and experience. She's the founder and CEO of Engrace Financial Solutions. And Blair just told me, YouTube star <laughs> has uh, has a series on YouTube called Street Smarts with Taylor. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Elaine. Hi, Blair. Thank you so much for having me. Now, um, th- did you want to talk about the, the YouTube series? Because you were on yeah. it too. Is that why you want to talk that, about it? That's kind of why, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe just, just a, a quick, quick tale, if you can give our listeners a bit of a sense of, you know, what is Street Smarts? Why did you start it? And what type of guests have you had? Obviously, I was, I think, one of your most recent guests. I'm looking yes. forward to getting that up. But yeah, can you tell us a bit about Street Smarts? Well, the idea of Street Smart came along because I have a tendency to spend a lot of time talking to clients about the different products and, and really spending time to educate them on the different options and strategies available. And then at some point, somebody should say, well, you should just, you know, have that recorded so you don't have to keep repeating yourself. <laughs> right. oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So that started the, the journey to get to this, the Street Smarts with Taylor video series. And essentially, it's pretty short, uh, maybe around three to five minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's in the beginning for season is essentially for me to talk about some very basic things. What's RSP? What's TFSA? What's life insurance? And within a three minute period, you can't really get into it. In our second season that we just finished um, filming, with you, Blair, mm-hmm. to be on our as one of our guests, is is to get deeper into the different subjects that we talked about in the first season. So, mm-hmm. for example, with Blair, we really got him to dig into how to deal with debts because yep. we had a video on debts, just a very general idea, uh, and and. The idea and the hope is to continue moving forward and and just to keep giving information to people and allowing them to have a place where hopefully they could trust me to to speak into uh, their financial planning needs. Excellent. Well, yeah, we'll encourage our listeners if they go on YouTube and they look up Street Smarts with Taylor, they yes. can like, subscribe, and see all the wonderful videos. Yes, and please, thank you. Great stuff. Well, it's good. Like, information's power, yeah, right? Exactly. And that's the key is, is to give people as much information as possible mm-hmm. to make the best decisions they can based on their own circumstances. And if they need more, then they've already, I would think they already would know you a little better, feel like they know you to walk in the door. Yeah, and I, the idea of the videos really is to give the, the, the general public like at least some ideas of what to ask or mm-hmm. what to look into. Sure. And then they can go from there and talk to their own financial advisors on the different things that's suitable for them. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the topic for this segment is with Taylor is called, What Do People Miss Out On? So I bet that there's a ton of things that you hear consistently from people that they're either uh, failing to consider or regret Mm -hmm. not having taken advantage of. And I really am looking forward to hearing your answer on this. So what are they? It's too bad that we don't have days to get into this and Mm -hmm. only just this time. Uh, I narrowed down to three different areas. The first one, the biggest one really, is that we can't turn back time and it's really too bad that uh, 
people don't think to start saving early, early on, mm. and and they start feeling the need when you know all the all the craziness are done. Like the kids are grown, the mortgage is somewhat paid off, yep. and they can see retirement looming ahead, and then they start talking to someone like me and says, "Okay, what do I need to do to to get?" You know, set so that I would have a retirement income, and and that's when all the all the things come up as far as I wish we could have because you know if you could at age eighteen or even as a child the parents start saving on behalf of clients mm-hmm. and and just continue moving forward that would be so great because it's all about uh, the value of money and and time mm-hmm. uh, the the. People hear about um, the miracle compounding as an example. Yeah, compound interest. And we talk about interest rates working against you with debt, mm-hmm. but interest rates can work for you, right? Powerfully yeah. over time. If you have enough time to to save, oh my gosh, you could do so much with the power of compounding. Um, I have an example if we could get into it a little bit. Yep. So for example, if you're age 18, have your first job and you start putting aside $100 a month and just keep doing that, you know, just just... Don't worry about it and just keep doing that and just assume that there's a 5% interest rate over the course of that period until uh, your age 65, which is your average retirement time. You could have accumulated throughout that period of with $100 a month over a quarter million dollars wow. just to do that. And mm-hmm. if you actually break down the numbers, you only put in the principal amount is only about $56,000, you know, $100 every month over the years, over the years. Yes. But the actual interest amount that is over $170,000. And mm. that's the power of compounding go, going, you know, for that length of time. So that's awesome if you can start doing, let's say, at age 18. But if you have to do it, let's say, at age 48, which is where a lot of my clients start coming to see me about things like that, uh, then you have to at least put aside $800 a month to do the same hmm. work right. to get to that at age 65. Right. Which is a lot. And, Which and, is a lot. And I really like your assumption here because sometimes I know various industries can get criticized for using very rosy assumptions. Oh, you're going to earn 15% in your money or 12%, yeah. but this is 5%. That's a reasonable long-term it's return, possible. right? Yeah. It's possible. Mm-hmm. But... The thing is, $800 a month to get a quarter million dollars upon retirement at age 65 doesn't get you very far. Mm. So if that's all you're, you know, all you got, then you really actually realistically need to set aside maybe two, three, five thousand dollars a month to get to the point where you're able to potentially retire at 65 and live out the rest of your life the next, what, 10, 15, 20 years or more. The longer we live, the more money you need to live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, And that's a crazy amount of money. Because if you're be. able to put away that amount of money a month, then saving for your retirement's probably not a, an mm-hmm. issue, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you're in another stratosphere altogether. And I, I like this... You know, why don't people start saving early? And I, I've heard this question asked so many times, and I've asked myself that question, like, why didn't I do this earlier? Because I'll, yeah. I'll know somebody who so- started saving when they mm-hmm. were 15 or 16. Um, and it's, it's almost, and my father was one of those people who said, 
start putting 10% away. But one, I didn't listen to him. But two, <laughs> he was kind of abnormal because not everybody got that as a young kid growing yep. up to do that. Uh, and it's a, it's a society thing, an education thing. It's people's stuff about money get in the way of passing good information to their kids. What is it? That it's all of that, is Elaine, it? and and honestly, it's just, you know, it has to start at home. It has to start with the parents teaching their kids how to save, how to set aside that ten percent is absolutely hmm. the thing to do. Yeah. Your, if there's nothing else that parent, you do, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That, that's the one, if you right? could yeah. just do that, yeah. that would have been amazing. But aside from that, in our school system, we don't have you know a course that would really teach the the kids in public school how to deal with money, how to start saving, what are the different things, how to deal with debts. That's such a big thing. And so that's one thing, not enough information. And the other aspect of it is that even if someone do get started in saving, the potential of having that account untouched for the next 40 or longer years is not really realistic because life happens mm. and things happen. People need to buy their place. They need to get married. They need to travel. There's emergencies. All of that, unfortunately, get them to dip into their saving account. And that's where the pattern breaks down. And and once again, that power of compounding doesn't happen because we go into our money and mm. need to use it. So what I would think is is just finding a solution to first educate our kids properly and then second of all finding different things that we could do to to keep the money in place fair mm-hmm. enough now I know go ahead Blair. No, I was just th- thinking Taylor if I was listening to the show now and I'm you know 18 years old and thinking I wish I was <laughs> and thinking okay <laughs> I, I can put away a hundred dollars a month I'd also be thinking you know am I too small of a client to engage an advisor uh, depends I would talk to you personally, yep. uh, but I admit most advisors will have a hard time taking on someone just with $100 a month. Right. So find someone like me or... <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm here. Yeah. No, fair uh, enough. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, just to get started, it's perfectly fine to, let's say, go to where you do your banking mm-hmm. and, and just set up a regular TFSA account and just... Develop the habit. Just automatic, a really. hundred bucks moves over, and then exactly. after a few years, or even a said right off the bat, give you a call, or if you're not in their local market, they, sure. there might be an advisor that has a certain minimum size, but mm-hmm. you'll get that in a few years of savings, probably, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm so glad you said the TFSA because you hear that a lot, but it stands for and it works tax-free savings account. And we have it in this country, and it's probably one of the best things that the federal government ever decided I agree. to <laughs> give us yes. and to take full advantage of it if you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain? Because we just have uh, about a minute, minute yeah. and a half You'll need or to so come left. back, Taylor, to talk about the other two big things. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but, but the TFSA, because that's, that's totally accessible to everyone. And how does it work? Well, it's accessible to everyone 18 and over. Okay, and fair enough. I didn't realize that. Okay. And in BC specifically, you actually have to be 19 to get your first TFSA account started. Okay. So having said that, yes, 
beyond age thing is is accessible to everyone and I do have a video on the on my YouTube excellent <laughs> low plug cross there. promote I like it <laughs> got to do that yeah. and uh, so TFSA is really just having the money inside this vehicle it's really a wrapper and inside this vehicle it could be anything it could be a regular saving account it could be a GIC if you're doing this at a bank or it could be mutual funds or stocks uh, but whatever growth are you can get all of that saving account that's tax free yeah. and that becomes really powerful when you have a lot of money to work work with over time yes so and as long as you keep it in that mm-hmm. until you need it right it's not a taxable it's not a taxable thing until you take it out it's not taxable at all oh because, that's fair enough because the money that you put in there is after tax money and then, and then the the beauty of it is then that whatever growth happens inside that account, that is the um, tax free amount. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. That's why you do what you do, and I do this job. <laughs> Taylor Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining us here. Um, I want to mention your YouTube series again. If you want to access it, very easy to do. It's called Street Smarts with Taylor, and Taylor spelled T A A Y L A. Also, go to Engrace Financial Solutions, and I bet you've got a website as well. EngraceFinancial.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment's all about interest rates, and I think it's really good that you did this, put this mm-hmm. one together, because it, it is, I mean, it's something that we hear about Every constantly, yep. right? <laughs> what's up, what's down, what's going to happen, and that fear of interest rates going up and the impact that that will have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so always, they're always speculated about, financial analysts have been talking about, and they've been low forever in this country. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I think is it's good news and bad news depending on where you are, and I think that's where the confusion or the uncertainty comes from because it can impact you uh, in a couple of different ways, whether they're up or down, depending on what you're doing. Yeah, exactly, Elaine, and and just like you said perfectly, interest rates are so pop culture. Almost every day we hear about is the Bank of Canada going to cut rates or not? What's the Fed doing in the U.S.? But essentially, what is the interest rate? And it's the price of money. Basically, it's the price that you pay that if you borrow money when you pay it back. There's a certain price for you holding that money for a period of time. And on a bigger scale, the interest rates are how government essentially tries to manage the economy. Um, you know, post-2008, when everything was in the doldrums, the government cut interest rates so significantly to spur growth. So the idea is when interest rates are lower and you need to spur some growth, basically people can borrow money more cheaply, business can invest, and you know things are better off. But the challenge is if you keep interest rates too low for too long, well, then inflation starts to creep in and prices start to go up. And, you know, now we're hearing about rent increases for the city of Vancouver, you know, four and a half percent next that's year. The, yeah, that's their min, that's the, the increase that they've put on them, yeah. which is crazy mm-hmm. because it's already in- unbelievably expensive to try to live in the city of That's Vancouver. right, and a vacancy of sub 1%. You yeah. know, that's not an efficient market. That's a very landlord-friendly uh, market. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of this, too, is driven by 
government's scared to raise interest rates too quickly um, because they're worried about this whole fragile economy, fragile recovery. So if they start to raise interest rates, well, then probably inflation would go down. But what's that going to do to the rest of the economy? Yeah. And it's it's also about raw materials and what we're exporting and what we're importing. I mean, it really impacts a ton of different things in a ton of different ways. Yeah. Now, on a micro level of how does it impact the regular consumer who listens to our show, let's talk about that. Absolutely. So (laughs) credit card debt. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, credit card debt. Zero impact as as interest rates go up and down. So, you know, when you hear loans are priced out at prime plus something, you know, usually it's prime plus two or prime plus three or something like that. You know, if you're doing an an equity line of credit or something like that, Um, you know, credit card debts, even the cheapest ones are about prime plus 17. Exactly. They don't care. They're already so exorbitantly high than higher than anything else. Yeah. So, and possibly the loan shark down the street. but that's The, the payday it. loans, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I feel like it'd be, you know, too cheeky by half for them to say, you know, the, the interest rates went up by a quarter point, so now our interest rates are going to be 20.25% as yeah. opposed to, you know, 20%. Exactly. So typically, interest rates aren't going to impact much on your credit card bill, your credit card statement, and the interest that you're charged. There's just not a whole lot of a relationship between the interest rate. What the credit card company would say is that you're paying such a high rate because of risk, because they know that not everybody's going to pay all this debt back. They need to make money. There's a risk premium, so on and so forth. But your interest rate in your credit card doesn't typically change with the business cycle. And I always feel like we we need to mention, uh, and uh, as an important piece, on your credit card statement, Mm -hmm. it says now, by law, how long it will take you to pay it off at this interest rate or at this uh, at this rate. If you just make the minimums. Making yeah. the minimum payment, this is how long it's going to... You need to pay attention to that number. Oh, yeah. $6,000 can take you 40 years. Yeah. Crazy, right? That, that is crazy. And how many times over would you have paid that 6000 back? A yeah, lot, right? right? At 20% or 19% or whatever the thing is. So yeah. pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um now, uh, so you've added this. Did you know that if you miss payments on your credit cards, you could find your interest rate increases by up to 5% as mm-hmm. a result of delinquency? Yeah. So that's important. Exactly, yeah. So um, nothing to do with the broader context of interest rates, but you've really got to be aware for your situation that if unless you're paying everything on time, you can suddenly lose you know, your best client interest rate and be put into a different category that can be significantly more expensive. Yeah. I, my experience is if I miss a, a payment on a credit card by accident, nine times, 99% of the time, that's when it would happen just because I got my dates mixed up. Um, they charge me the full interest, but yeah. they don't increase it. But I would bet that it would be on the second or third time yeah. that they'd seriously take a look at me. Yeah, typically after about two to three months, usually three months, is that's when they'll make a determination. Okay, so yeah. then it's another 5% and Could be. that's brutal. Okay, vehicle financing. Mm-hmm. How are they impacted by the big interest rate? Yeah, and on the surface level, there's really no impact. So your vehicle financing is not going to get more expensive, typically, if you're already in a loan, because they're structured as fixed loans. So when you finance a vehicle, you know, if you're super great credit and buying a new car, you know, maybe it's at a couple percent, or, you know, maybe it's at five or six percent, it's not a floating rate. So a big difference between fixed and variable, floating or fixed or whatever, um, these are fixed rates, typically, when you do an auto loan, so it doesn't really change your interest rate at all. Yeah, and they set the amount of time that it's going to, that it, you're going to take to pay it off, too right? They mm-hmm. go 60 months or whatever the whatever the the, uh, the length of time is that's set up. Pre- well, yeah, and I'm happy you mentioned the 60 months because that used to be the default, right? It used to be you're going to pay your car off over five years, hopefully you have a little bit of useful life after that. If you can believe it, Elaine, over 85% of Canadians now finance vehicles with terms longer than six years. Wow. So we're talking seven, eight years, nine years sometimes. 
And th- by that time, your car, if it's brand new when you've bought it, seven years later... Mm. Hopefully, it's still going strong. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, some, I'm sure. some manufacturers have a long warranty, but not all. <laughs> I'm sure. It, I'm yeah. sure it is, but the well, whatever. Oh, you, you yeah. might be sick of it. Just being being frank, right? Yeah. If you've driven the same car for seven years. Yeah, not hardship. Let's not say that. No, but, no. But you but, might want to make a change. Yeah, changes yeah. in technology and all that kind of stuff, or gas efficiency, or fuel efficiency. All those kinds of things can mm-hmm. change over that period of time. Yeah, like the one impact could be that when yeah. you're finished with your current vehicle and if you're going to finance a new vehicle, obviously if interest rates have increased over that period of time, you would expect fixed rates to have increased as well. So right. if the rates are a percent higher two years from now, expect instead of 3%, you're probably paying 4 something like that. I would expect the rates on new loans to actually increase. Sure, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Especially if they've been at that, at that level for a, a period of time too, yep. right? So lines of credit, how does how does did they get impacted really quickly by that or not? Directly and immediately impacted. Okay. So just about every line of credit, uh, whether it's secured against your house or not, is structured as a variable rate loan, which means that anytime the interest rate changes, okay. um, you know the bank has to decide how much they're going to pass along to consumers, and usually the answer is all of it. So generally, if the rates go up the next day, your line of credit rate is probably going to go up by the same amount. But you know that going in because it's a variable rate. That's what they're going to charge you. Yeah, you know it going in, but does everybody stress test it every time? You know, mm-hmm. does everyone's taking out a line of credit think, well, what if the rates were doubled? If they were, you know, at four or five percent as opposed right. to maybe the three that I'm paying now, um, you know, what would that do to me and could I afford it? It's human nature to say, well, the good times are just going to continue for now. We don't need to worry about the bad times. Yeah, and based on history, interest rates haven't gone up by any uh, large, significant amount for a very long time. Yeah, oh, so exactly. So you have history on your side in thinking that, but mm-hmm. something to be aware of. What about mortgages? And this is a case of fixed versus variable. Again, if you're on a fixed rate mortgage, no impact. You basically made your deal and it's at renewal. You'll be looking at potentially higher rates. Um, But variable mortgages is, I think, where people are going to feel the biggest, biggest squeeze on this. Um, You know, if someone's got a variable mortgage of 2 or 3% now, even a 1% increase in interest rates could mean a 50% increase in the amount of interest that they're being charged. So I've met with a bunch of, um, you know, usually young families who just did everything they could to get into the housing market. They overextended themselves. Sometimes they put the down payment on some credit card cash advances and things like that. And they've got a variable mortgage where if the rates go up at all, they're going to find themselves in a cash flow negative situation. So someone who's very, you know, bought too much house and is really hoping on no change in rates and they're on a variable rate mortgage, I think that person's the most vulnerable right now. And that's where interest rates can really impact people who have money. It's for them to go up. It's a good thing because now they're making more money for the folks who need it the most, young families, that impacts them the worst. Yeah, there's so many interconnections here. You know, even our currency, if rates go up, well, probably the dollar is going to be a bit stronger. But what's that going to do to the economy? Exactly. (laughs) So what can you do? Can you tell us what can you do? Yeah, well, in, in just a few seconds, the biggest thing is is, is don't panic. Fair right? enough. Um, you know, if you're in a variable um, type of mortgage or variable line of credit, I would investigate about locking in, but you've got to do the cost benefit and run some sensitivities to see, you know, are you locking in at a rate you can afford or do you still want to take a bit of a risk and hope that you'll be smarter in the long term that rates aren't going to go up as much as people think. And if you're in a pickle now, then seek some help. Yeah. Get some advice. Go see Blair. Go to any of the offices throughout British Columbia. Check out their website first, Sands dash trustee.com or call their 800 number 1-800 number at 661-3030 go sit down talk to somebody see if see if you need some help and how that what that help would look like and to find an office near you 
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.